there is one way to really deal with shame respectfully, and that's to displace it with love and to displace it with a sense of dignity. So that's the part that I'm interested in. How do I restore my connection to intelligent erotic life force in such a way that dignity just naturally arises, that self-respect just returns. I don't have to read a book about self-respect and then do what that person said. It's not going to work for me. And I think I fought that my whole life through school, through personal development. Like, I don't want to read your damn book. You're not me. (laughs) Don't tell me what to do. (laughs) It isn't going to work. I already know this because I'm not going to do it. (laughs) But there is something really empowering about trusting my own sense of wisdom that all of a sudden I felt like there was a freedom to that. I didn't feel like, oh, somebody else knows better than me. And now I just have to follow the rules, which I've never been good at. Go figure. And I thought, wow, what if each individual could get reconnected to their own sense of erotic wisdom and guide themselves from that natural knowing and bring a sense of confidence and dignity and trust and respect back for themselves? What if? I wonder what would happen then. ADHD Rewired, episode 293. This is the podcast for those of us with really good intentions and a slightly wandering attention. I'm Eric Tivers. I'm a licensed clinical social worker by training and a coach by design. I'm your host and I have ADHD. ADHD Rewired is more than just a podcast. We are a community. We are wired for connection and you are not alone. Go to ADHDrewired.com to learn how you can join us in our free secret Facebook group. Get additional resources for every episode, including links to any resources we mentioned on today's show. You can support us on Patreon, sign up for our email newsletter, you can request podcast postcards to distribute to your clients and support groups, and you can learn all about our intensive online video-based coaching and accountability groups. You can do all of this at our website, ADHDrewired.com. We know that starting is the hardest part, so let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of ADHD Rewired. Today's guest is Tanya Brakeman. Tanya was raised as an army brat in Germany, is the mother of five grown children. She's an interior designer, a writer, a teacher and relationship mentor, and has spent over 10 years actively engaged in the field of transformational leadership. In 2013, Tanya devoted herself to the creation and delivery of a curriculum in the study of erotic discipline, Revel, the Audacity of Ecstasy. Revel is a daringly vulnerable investigation into how we relate to ourselves, influence our relationships, and express our unique influence in our community and world. She lives and works from Olympic, Pennsylvania in Washington States. Tanya, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And um, the Olympic Peninsula is that or this West Peninsula. And I live on a little tiny peninsula inside of that peninsula. So I'm surrounded by water. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. (laughs) Very nice. So how did you uh, get into uh, into this this, uh, world of exploring intimacy and sex and um, eroticism? What was what was your entry into that? Well, there's, there's the really long version of that, and then there's the condensed version, so we'll go with the latter. Um, after two marriages and five kids, uh, I was 31 uh, when I realized that I really, um, you know, after my fifth child was born, that I really had not put myself on a path of honoring who I was as an individual. I really had put myself on a path of being well-used, like being a mother is a good thing. Being a wife is a good thing, but I was, uh, destructively unhappy and, um, came across a personal development course through a friend and, and they said, look, you should, you should consider doing this course. And I did. And it changed everything really. And I, I saw through that coursework, which was really about letting the past go and creating new futures, you know, from a really free, clear place that I had not been creating my life. I had been surviving it Mm. and I had been doing a lot of things that I thought I should do, but I hadn't ever really asked myself what I wanted to do. And, um, I, so 
made some changes and listened to my bones after doing some of this personal development work. And, and when all the clutter was out of the way and there was enough clarity to hear my voice, it said, look, all you've ever wanted to do is to talk to people about, you know, sex, love, intimacy, and relationships, given that's the core of what builds community and what builds our world. And that the dysfunctions that affect that area are commonly what destroy our communities, families, and the, and the world, you know, our relationships in them. So to me, it was super important. And I moved to Seattle from Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, where I had been, yeah, I'd been in Idaho for 30 years. Um, and it was a culture shock, you know, I heard about something called the sex positive community. And I thought, what in the world is that? That's great. Can you explain that just for, for by chance if, it, if listeners have never heard that before? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's kind of a, a, a created term. The sex positive culture in Seattle was, I mean, you could say it's, you know, largely a product of a more liberal environment, but, but really a, actually a friend of mine coined that here in the Seattle area. And she had created a, a club where people could come and explore their sexual expression in a very safe, you know, consensual environment. And I was just fascinated. So she's who I heard that term from the sex positive community. And it was just a group of people who were really willing to have open, considerate, uh, respectful conversations about sexual expression. So that included, you know, um, conversations about BDSM and sex and relationships and power dynamics. And I just wanted to hear everything about it. And so I started connecting with her and, and then got exposure to that world and um, really thought that there was a lot to offer there for basic uh, relationship dynamics and personal discovery. So I certainly, certainly did that. It seems like the environment like that is the sort of ultimate uh, space for being seen and having to really uh, uh, be vulnerable. Um, Cause I think that for, for so long, there's been so much shame and taboo even to discuss these kinds of things. And it seems like there is a, a growing sort of awareness in sort of the importance of just our, our health in a, as, a, as sexual beings um, to at the very least be having more conversations about these kinds of things. Yeah, definitely. And in a funny way, we can thank um, Fifty Shades of Grey and its writer uh, for opening that conversation to the mainstream. Should I admit I still haven't um, seen that? Or no, that? I, no. Uh, <laughs> it'd be much better to get cliff notes on that one. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> I, I never thought that as something that like, oh, I should see that or read that to know what that's all about. Well, I, you know, what I would say about it is that what you just said right before that, which is it, it brought attention to something that human beings have been dealing with, you know, ostensibly forever, but haven't had language for or an environment in which to have those conversations without feeling uh, a, a terrific amount of like looking over my shoulder and I should be really nervous about. It. There was really a clear space created to have those conversations because it became obvious there were an awful lot of people that were interested in that conversation. I mean, the sales on that book and the sales on those crazy movies, it says something. Yeah. And so, you know, for those of us who were in the BDSM kink education world, we, you know, some were horrified at the lack of, uh, you know, accuracy and, and, real wisdom included in the storyline, but it did open up a conversation and boy, the, the interest from what we would consider the, the non kink world or non BDSM world was, it was profound to see how many people were interested in at least peeking at this conversation and the difference that it could make for them. In these communities, have you, uh, um, have, have you seen or talked to, um, people where you are maybe sensing that there is probably more ADHD in these communities? <laughs> well, because I didn't have any connection to the ADHD conversation at the time, that's certainly not what I was looking for, but I did notice that there was, uh, I mean, there are some really rich intellectuals in that crowd, um, a different way of seeing and uh, seeing the world and experiencing the world. So I noticed there was something now that ADHD is a, a present conversation for me, a present reality, I can go back and think, oh, geez, <laughs> it's all over the place. Right? So it sounds like it's not just ADHD, but it's a, a community that attracts a lot of just neurodivergent thinkers. I think so. 
that's that's my sentiment yeah you had when we, we talked earlier you uh one of the things that you said is that you know people often misuse sex and love and intimacy will you talk about that yeah, definitely. And I'll say firsthand, you know, that, that I was the first one that I noticed, really. Um, you know, I have had a childhood background of inappropriate exposure uh, to sexual themes and interactions. And even then I wondered, why is this person, why does this person want this from me? And why are they asking this? Because it doesn't really obviously fit into the what we think should be happening but I was curious enough at age 12 to think, why would this person want this from mm. me? And, you know, as I got older, I could realize that, and this is part of my gift. You know, there's, there's a kind of wisdom that I had available at far too young an age. Uh, and I was able to recognize he wanted something from me that he wasn't getting at some level. And yet because he was giving me money to be quiet, I was actually the one in charge. And I knew that then. Hmm. Like, that's really curious. You know, if he was free to do this, there wouldn't be secrecy and I wouldn't be getting money to go to the store to buy ice cream cones. <laughs> so I, I thought, wow, this is a, what an interesting dynamic that this old, older man is actually, um, what was, should I say, uh, vulnerable to me. Because right, I could have I could have told at any moment and ruined his life. At what point did you um, did that become your story? Because I had to imagine that when you were younger, that was probably very confusing. Yeah, that that's not how that was. Well, it wasn't the only time that that had happened for me. Um, that kind of exposure, and so I had a collection of experiences mm. to to draw from. And um, I think it was after I. It was after I got into the BDSM scene and started having different kinds of conversations about abuse, non-consent. And I thought, oh, wait a minute, there's a, a richer power dynamic going on here. And I was kind of able to reconcile, like look back and say, well, what was I thinking when I was 12 and a half about this? And why did I let that go on to the point that it did? And well, you, you were a child. Mm -hmm, I was. And, and he was a trusted, you know, grandfather figure. Um, but there was a part about it that was also very, I mean, I gotta say it was intoxicating, mm. you know, as, as a pretty sexually aware 12 year old, um, and curious, there was, there was that element of it too. And that's probably the hardest part for anybody to talk about if they had that kind of a feeling in a sexual abuse situation, like that's hard to reconcile. I shouldn't have been excited. I shouldn't have well, you know, there's, I, I, I have, uh, and this, some of this comes from, uh, listening to, uh, uh other podcasts, uh, where they, they talk about this, uh, specifically, uh, the mental illness happy hour with, uh, Paul Gilmartin. And they, one of the, the, the things they talk about is just because your body physiologically gets aroused is not, does not mean that you actually like this, what's happening. And I think that that's, such an important thing to understand. Absolutely. Absolutely critical. Right. Cause if you're getting aroused yeah. and you're like, well, I must like it then it's like, no, like what happens physiologically is it's just different. That's right. That's right. That is such a huge distinction to make Eric. I'm so glad you said that. Uh, Cause I think that that is a, a conversation prevalent, you know, in the world of abuse and, and particularly sexual abuse you know, it, that's a hard one to reconcile with oneself. Like my body betrayed me. My heart was in a whole other place and my head was in a very different place, but what was with my body? And, and I would say that, that right there was probably the most uh, compelling impetus and for me opening up this whole conversation with rebel, like, wow, what, what difference could be made in a human being's existence and in a family and community's existence should we be able to reconcile our own sexual expressions and experiences without guilt and shame and fear? Because that's really the essence of our being, right? And if, if we can reconcile that relationship with ourselves, it's what I call atonement and at one with myself. Not so much in the Christian sense, but in the real scientific sense of I am now feeling at one with myself again, or maybe for the first time ever, because I've reconciled this deep need that my body seems to have. 
and 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 the confusing thoughts and feelings that go with it and and the misunderstandings that cause such confusion and and a sense of fear and shame and to be able to reconcile all of that kind of together is deeply empowering and and a real opportunity to revisit who I consider myself to be and what my sense of self-worth actually is and how I might reconsider using myself, um, using my own, I, I use the acronym for self, single evident life force. Mm -hmm. that's, that's who I am as a self. It's, it helps me remember not the self like an ego, because that's only so interesting. It's important too, but the self like I am a unique particle of the universe. And, and when I think of using any other part of the universe, I'm very thoughtful about it. But sometimes when I go to use myself, I'm not that thoughtful about it. Mm, sort of that idea that we we tend to be you know nicer to everybody else except for ourselves that's right that's right because we better we should if we're not nice and we're not good people won't like us and they won't accept us but the person that we spend the most time with you, you know often we have the least um uh quality you know practices for self-respect mm. and personal dignity than we do for others and then we're back. We're in this whole other cycle of, of feeling used because we don't feel appreciated. But it wasn't them over there using us. It's how do I use myself? Do I create consensual agreements and consensual practices with myself? You know, with the, within the ADHD community, there's there's such a um, so many of us wrestle so much with self worth. Um, and I know that one of the things that, that you shared with me, um, is that you are helping and you're teaching, um, people how to get back their own innate sense of self-worth, um, through what you have called, uh, these four core erotic values. Yes. And I want to, uh, I want to dive into that. I, I first want to take okay. a quick break, but then when, uh, as soon as we come back from that, let's dive right into, uh, how do we can rediscover um, and, and create that sense of self-worth through discovering these uh, these core four erotic values? Outstanding. It's my favorite conversation. Awesome. And we will be <laughs> right back. Hey, this morning, did you get up and maybe first think that you're going to clean the house? And then you thought about your friend that you haven't called in a few months and you said that you're going to call them? And, uh, and then you realized on your way into work that you're going to finally make some really good progress at work. And then the same day repeats itself again, because none of those things happened. And you wake up the next day and you say, I'm going to do things differently today. Unfortunately, our will alone to do things differently doesn't make it so. So pick up that imaginary wrench, that one that's sitting right next to you, you know, on the other side, pick it up and throw it. Throw it right into that wheel that represents the same day after day after day cycle. Stop the cog from turning and break the cycle. Join us for ADHD Rewired's 19th season of coaching and accountability groups. If we want to end our days differently, then we have to do things differently each day. But it's not just about changing what we do. And it's not just about changing how we do it. Sometimes we have to examine our thoughts and beliefs behind how we approach things. We have to address our relationship with success and failure. We have to address shame and feelings of inadequacy and that nagging feeling that tries to convince you that you are not enough. You are enough and you are not alone. Come grow with ADHD Rewired in 2020. Growth begins with our intensive online video-based coaching and accountability groups that meets three times a week for 10 weeks. And the support continues when you join our alumni membership community. Our winter sessions start January 10th. While your imaginary wrench is still holding the cogs of time, Go to coachingrewire.com and click on that big purple button. Our registration kickoff event will be Thursday, November 21st at 11 a.m. Central Time. Winter sessions start January 10th and go through March 20th. Registration is by invitation only and you have to attend one of our registration events to join. Coaching groups fill up fast, so sign up today and join other people just like you. You have to get your name on the list to get an invite 
So to do that, go to coachingrewired.com and click on that big purple button. And just tell me what email you want me to use to send the invitation to. If you already signed up, you should have received a save the date email last Thursday. And if you sign up before invitations get sent, you'll get a save the date email sent to you too. Invitations will be sent out a little bit closer to the event. But add this to your calendars now. Registration is Thursday, November 21st at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 Eastern. Group starts January 10th. Go to Coaching Rewired to learn more and to get on our registration invitation list. That's coachingrewired.com. I joined this group because I felt I was living life on a hamster wheel, spinning chaos. What I realized is that my life isn't a hamster wheel. I discovered that by slowing down, getting organized, I can create beauty in my life instead of the chaos. I'm really grateful for this group. That's coachingrewired.com. Have you checked out ADHD Rewired's newest podcast, Hacking Your ADHD with Will Curb? Last Monday on episode four, Will talked about how to work better with your ADHD. I think it was his best episode yet. And on yesterday's episode, Will explores the differences between goals, strategies, and tactics, and why understanding the difference is vital to hitting your goals. That episode might be better than episode four, but I haven't heard it yet. If you haven't checked it out, do yourself a favor. Go subscribe to Hacking Your ADHD. These are fun, snack-sized podcasts that cover different ways to hack your ADHD. That's Hacking Your ADHD, available everywhere you consume podcasts. Oh, and one quick programming note, ADHD Rewired is now on Spotify, along with our other podcasts, ADHD Essentials and Hacking Your ADHD. And if you're wondering why I wasn't on Spotify before, well, that makes two of us. I have no idea why I wasn't on Spotify. I didn't realize that I wasn't on Spotify until this past Thursday night. So I'm there now. Go enjoy. All right, we are back with Tanya Brakeman. And right before the break, we were talking about, uh, you know, in the ADHD community, there is this, this, um, sense, this realization that we are often wrestling with our self-worth. Sometimes we are hustling for our sense of self-worth, that feeling of, you know, if I just do a little more or if I can just do this or just do that, then I'll be good enough. Right. And, um, you know, for people who've been listening to this podcast for a long time, they, they know I have a thing for Brene Brown and, uh, uh, how she's really influenced, uh, my thinking on this. And, um, when, when I realized that I had been negotiating my own self-worth based on how much I got done, right. That's that when I, when I first heard her talk about that was, that was sort of that punch in the gut moment. And so, uh, since, since hearing that, you know, it's fun to say I've been punched in the gut by Brene Brown. Um, <laughs> if you're going to be punched in the gut by somebody, <laughs> right. You know, so she should come on the podcast to let me know it's all going to be okay. Um, <laughs> I'll bet that's going to happen. I, I hope one day until then, let's talk about these four core erotic values. Right. As a little bit of setting, uh, I want listeners and for you to think about the environments in which you use yourself. There are different environments or what I call spheres of influence. You know, there's the greater world out there where you're supposed to make money and be useful. And some people get a real sense of value out of being productive and making money and looking like a provider and all that, right? There's another realm inside of that. Think of this as concentric circles. Um, that is the realm of relationships and, and I'm talking all relationships, just relationships with human beings. It could be intimate. It could be friends. It could be coworkers, just relationships. How do I relate to other? And, and in our relationships, we find a sense of value at some level in some way. And some, some people get more of a sense of value out of their personal relationships than they do out of their work. We could start to draw some associations about male, female, different energy types, but let's, we'll save that for another time. Um, and then inside of that circle, think of the realm of the individual, how I relate to myself. Mm. That, this is where it starts to get a little sticky. And then inside of that, the last and most potent, you know, internal sphere of influence is, is what I call source, the relationship to life. So for each one of those four spheres of influence, uh, 
I, I have a workbook and people go through this workbook and we start to investigate questions like this. What is my relationship to life, life as love, as a benevolent life force? And we talk about all the frustrations and kind of like furies about that, like all the disappointments. And then we go through that. It takes a few hours. And at the bottom of that very rich well of frustrations, what we find out is there's something they're frustrated about. For example, with me, when I got to the bottom of what are my, what are the things that I get upset about in, in, in terms of life as love, this beautiful benevolent force? Well, it's unfair. It's unkind. It's unpredictable. It's a lot of, I have all these complaints, right? When I distill down to the bottom of that, ultimately what I'm pissed off about and what I'm jaded and cynical about is that um, life is supposed to be beautiful. Beauty is a core value, an erotic core value of mine. And when the experience of beauty is present for me, it's very different and I get a kind of peaceful, deep, rich, and it is definitely an erotic or here also creative value for me. Will you define how you're using the word erotic and erotic core yeah. value? Yeah, definitely. Um, one of my favorite writers, Audre Lorde, uh, I, I found her writings from the 60s and she said a thing like this. This is not verbatim, but it was exactly what I was sensing. Uh, the erotic as we relate to it now is more of a plasticized neon pink triple X sign in a window. You know, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the origin of that word, which is Eros life force. Mm. As it is, you know, etymologically created, the word Eros has to do with source. Okay. We have plasticized it. So there is quite a distinction there in the way that we currently use the word Eros or erotic. Okay. So that's what I'm talking about is that, that critical life force that is intelligent there's an erotic intelligence. And, and when we have access to that, those core values, I consider that, you know, it's the best tool I've seen so far um, of saying, well, what's the most potent life informing life affirming experience that I have as a human being that I can now that I can see it as these four distinct values that are unique to me. Now I can own it. I can care for it. I can tend it. I can cultivate those values as an environment that is uniquely mine to cultivate and to curate and to tend. And for me, beauty is one of them. But I didn't find that out until I looked through all of my rage and upset and disappointment and jadedness about life. Went, oh, beauty is the thing I'm defending. <laughs> of course. Of how, course. How did you discover that? It's really... It, it, it's, so interesting. I've had conversations with therapists and they're like, how did you, <laughs> how did you sort this out? I don't know. It just, it came, you know, well, what I realized, and this was through some of my other personal development is I never get upset about something that doesn't matter to me. If I'm upset, if I'm enraged, if I'm disappointed, if I'm depressed, it's, it's not about a thing that happened. It might look like it's about a thing that happened, but really, those are just the mechanics. Those are like the moving it's, parts. It's the story we tell ourselves about that thing. It is, right? Um, but that core feeling in my, I feel it in my chest sometimes. I feel it in my abdomen sometimes. I feel it in my, in my belly, my dantian, you know, this area kind of down in the abdomen. And I feel those, those somatic reactions and responses at different places, different times about different things. So that's what I'm talking about is that response. Sounds like you're talking about listening to your body as a source of intuition. Absolutely. It's something that Absolutely. I, uh, over the last couple of years, I've, uh, have reacclimated myself to my, my sort of sense of, of intuition. You know, there's a thing that happens in grad school where they you get so logic based and so evidence based yeah. when there's, there's a lot of value and importance in that, you know, but I, I think that there's a, there's, and maybe this was just my experience, but a dismissiveness to trusting your gut right? Listening to the, your gut, not always making decisions based on your gut, but listen to it and then, <laughs> and then think and pause and reflect. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up. See, I think this is one of the unique features of the neurodiverse crowd is that we do have a unique connection to what our bodies are saying. 
And it's so important to recognize it for what it is and to have a respect and a regard for that kind of primal wisdom. And when I, one of my first exposures to the conversation about ADHD was this idea of farmer hunter. Yeah. Pieces of information, yeah. but there were parts of that that I really resonated with and knowing that my, you know, ADHD runs thick through my family and my father was a warrior. Both of my brothers were warriors. I'm a warrior of a different sort. There's that, there's something very primal about the way that we connect to life. Um, we being my family. And I, and I think many people who are listening can probably have some connection to that. And so to be able to go all the way back to the primal, the erotic and to restore my relationship to that as a good thing, as a gift, as an intelligence, rather than as a liability, a taboo, a problem to wrestle, something to be ashamed of and then attempt to fix or forgive. Very different relationship. And I like to say also that, um, you know, wrestling shame is a bad idea <laughs> to begin with. <laughs> and wrestling guilt, it generally produces more of it. But in, in my mind and in my bones, I can sense that there is one way to really deal with shame respectfully and that's to displace it with love and to displace it with a sense of dignity. Mm. So that's the part that I'm interested in. How do I restore my connection to intelligent erotic life force in such a way that dignity just naturally arises? That self-respect just returns. I don't have to read a book about self-respect and then do what that person said. It's not going to work for me. Um, and I think I fought that my whole life through school, through personal development. Like, I don't want to read your damn book. You're not me. <sighs> don't tell me what to do. <laughs> it isn't going to work. I already know this because I'm not going to do it. <laughs> but there is something really empowering about trusting my own sense of wisdom that all of a sudden I felt like there was a freedom to that. I didn't feel like, Oh, somebody else knows better than me. And now I just have to follow the rules, which I've never been good at. Go figure. Um, and I thought, wow, what if each individual could get reconnected to their own sense of erotic wisdom and guide themselves from that natural knowing and bring a sense of confidence and dignity and trust and respect back for themselves. What if, I wonder what would happen then. And so that's what these, these years of, of having um, conversations with people about sex, love, intimacy, and power have really opened up. And, and those four core erotic values, I think of them as kind of like almost at the atomic level of the being ontologically. If I can get connected to the fact that I got upset because beauty got insulted I got upset because courage got insulted. That's another value of mine. I got defensive because creativity got insulted. And when you say and, insulted, you know, when, um, mm -hmm. so if, if someone uh, says that, let's say they have a high value for courage and um, they're in a situation where they did not act courageously, is that what you mean by got insulted? Absolutely. Okay. And, and there are lots of ways that, we can experience insult, but one of the, the flags is that we get upset or we withdraw one way or the other, right? Oh, something just got insulted. What got insulted is my question. Well, and I think this is such an important sort of um, component. And there's a lot of different ways that we can talk about this as different, you know, uh, 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 thought leaders that have different ways to describe this. And I think that it's important to have a variety, a palette of ways to describe it because you got to find what connects with you. Right. Right. Um, sure. Cause there's just like a little part of me that when I hear like your, uh, um, what was it, your, your life force and I'm like, I'm like my woo woo flags just go up. Right. <laughs> but, but like in our conversations, I've also have thought like, but this stuff also makes sense. Right. Yeah. And so I think that with emotional self-regulation, you know, is a core component of ADHD, even though it, it's not in the DSM, it's one of the core components. It absolutely is sure. one of the, the core components of it. And I think it's so important that we're able to acknowledge a, an emotion, a physiological 
um, experience of a given emotion, where we are feeling it, the intensity of that we are feeling it. And then pause and really pull back because I think it's really easy for someone to, to be in a situation and say, you made me mad, you know, and, and this idea that no one can really make you mad without your permission. Mm-hmm. Right. And, it, and I think it's a really important sort of area to when we are getting, uh, when we're getting fired up to really explore, like what's going on? Why is this particular situation, uh, for me, really hijacking my brain, right? And creating these, these, these really intense physiological responses to, to these situations. So it sounds like what you're, you're just kind of putting another perspective on listen to your body. There's a lot of wisdom and value there. And, and at the same time, explore what it means because just because we feel something doesn't mean it's true absolutely feeling feelings are super convincing liars of our experience they're sensational (laughs) (laughs) i love wordplay and i love bringing attention through words too because as we express ourselves in the world out there we experience ourselves it's this interesting exchange, this tug pull, you know, push pull. And, and when we can get responsible for how we're languaging our experience and, and, and instead of, oh my gosh, you just, you just said that thing and, and you made me feel X, Y, Z. It's holy cow. You said a thing. I had a reaction and now I'm reacting. Let me look. You just said a thing. doesn't matter. You know, I liked it or I didn't like it or felt good or didn't feel good, but I'm the one doing the reacting. Let me look. I mean, that's, that's right there. Super powerful to acknowledge and be able to get in the inquiry of what's my reaction actually about. It's probably not about what's happening in this moment. It's probably a collection of associations and reactions that were designed to protect me. That's understandable. And that's not what's happening in this moment. And I can, I'm getting married in less than 30 days. Wow. I'm so excited. Have you started, have you started planning the wedding yet? Um, <laughs> I'm thinking I'll, I'm, I'll take a look at it tomorrow. <laughs> and your, your, par- you know, your partner also has ADHD. He does. He does. He's the one who pointed it out to me. Yeah. We have a whole ADHD love story going on here. <laughs> I, I think that's the, a great next place to go. Let's, let's, let's take one more uh, quick break, and we'll, when we get back, we'll uh, we'll we'll dive into your uh, your ADHD love story. <laughs> Fantastic! Thanks, Eric. All right, we will be right back. I want to thank all of our patrons who support this podcast by giving a monthly financial contribution over at ADHDrewired.com slash Patreon. I'm so grateful for all your support. Patrons like Amy and Sarah who became patrons this week and patrons like Jamie who increased their contribution from 10 to $25 a month. Thank you so much. These contributions help offset the cost of the production of this show and a whole lot more. If you love the show and you count on it each week, then I'm asking you to help out. Give an amount that makes sense to you. Check out the perks starting at $5 a month. You can join me and a small group of other patrons next Tuesday and every fourth Tuesday of the month for a one hour group coaching call on Zoom. If you support us at the $25 a month or more level, we do those calls at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern. Whatever your reason for giving and whatever amount you give, thank you. It really does help and it really does mean a lot to me. Become a patron at ADHDrewired.com slash Patreon. That's ADHDrewired.com slash Patreon. And thanks. Join us every second Tuesday of the month for our live Q&A. Join me and Brendan Mahan from ADHD Essentials and Will Curb from Hacking Your ADHD. We do this every second Tuesday of the month in November. It's going to be on November 12th at 10.30 a.m. Pacific, 1.30 Eastern. Go to ADHDrewired.com slash events to register. That's ADHDrewired.com slash events. All right, we are back with Tanya Brakeman, and 
there's a an ADHD marriage coming up here. He, your <laughs> your soon to be uh, your soon to be husband is uh, um, he was the one that pointed out to you that uh, you you may have uh, some ADHD stuff going on. <laughs> Might want to consider. Yeah, it really was like that. Um, man, it's it's such a story, Erica. It, it would be fun. To, we could do a whole thing on just that, but. So here we are. It's uh, the last week of September. My birthday's coming up in a week. I'll be 49. I'll Happy just say Elma's that. birthday. Thank you. And last year, uh, after uh, ending a two and a half year long relationship, um, it was great and lovely. I just knew it wasn't, you know, needed, didn't need to continue. I'm doing the okay Cupid thing. And I'm like, oh, God, I'm so done with this. I was dating like crazy, having a blast. And then, like, I, you know, it's time. I'm, I want a real partner and I gave it one more swipe and this picture like leapt off of my little phone page and said, this is it. And I went, oh, shut up little voice. You know, <laughs> you say lots of interesting things, but, uh, uh, and so then I open up the profile and I look and it was so obvious, Eric, like the way he wrote his profile, the way that he crafted his pictures. I went, oh my God, that's him. That that's him. He's eight years younger than me and he has three little kids. What the hell? And that's him. And, um, so I sent him a cryptic message. He was crazy enough to respond. And we started talking on October 9th. We met on October 12th and we hand fasted, which is said, um, you're the one on October 18th. We went to Iceland, uh, right after that for his birthday, uh, his 40th birthday. And we proposed to each other in Iceland three wow. weeks after we met and there was just, so this is back to the conversation we were having before about that bodily knowing, you know, I've had bodily urges before plenty of times. I've been married twice. I have five kids and you know, I've hung out in the BDSM world. I know, you know, there's a difference between a bodily urge and a knowing to me. What, what is that difference? Man, you know, when we were talking about those different places that your body listens and really I'm very new to this too. I'll admit the, woo, the woo, woo, that was my word. You woo woos and your woo woo thing. Funny part of it, but I'm gently allowing myself to recognize that there is a bodily response that is intelligent and that is willing to take its time that I don't always have to react to or interact with immediately. And it, it sort of has a more of a full body, like, from the bottom of my belly to the top of my chest, I'll notice that's when, oh, that's when I'm actually listening. That, there's a difference between that sensation and just a bodily urge. Um, it's a different, there's a different quality to the excitement or what I would say arousal. And I think of these um, cycles that we go through as it starts with arousal, something gets aroused and then we can move it into connection or intimacy and then we can move it into surrender. That's kind of the life cycle of arousal to me, arousal, intimacy, surrender. And I had that experience of surrender. It was arousal, hyper, hyper arousal even. And then, wow, how does it, what am I looking at? And is it accurate? Is it true to me to respond to this arousal? And then do I feel like I can surrender to this thing that I'm noticing that it is really important and we just kept having that experience after we met and started talking. There weren't any of those. There were some red flags for sure that had to do with what the hell am I doing with a younger man who has three little kids? You know, those kinds of things. But those were just Types good of red flags that like a good friend would take. What are you doing? <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. But it was really interesting, too. When I started telling people, well, there's this amazing human. And, and they went, you look totally different. Uh, something's up. You know, and I went to see a spiritual advisor and she did some woo-woo stuff and she said, wow, this is huge. And, um, we just, we haven't questioned it you from know, that first time. I, I asked you what the difference between, um, the, the, uh, urge, like the, the urge and the knowing. Mm -hmm. Um, and as you were, were, uh, sharing your response, I sort of circled back to, um, what we were talking about at the very beginning of this conversation, 
um, or separating like just because our body physiologically reacts uh, in a way doesn't mean that we actually uh, it's something that we do actually like. And so I, I wrote down, I made this sort of this connection that the urge is it starts in the body, but then uh, ends up like we make stories about, we make meaning out of that, that, that sensation and the knowing starts in the brain and then it like confirms itself in the body. That may very well be the case. And I, um, Sage and I talk about, he kind of comes at things differently. Everything happens in to him in his body first and then gets to his brain. For me, it happens in my brain and then it goes to my body. Hmm. And so I think that we're all wired a little differently that way too. But what is important is that the mind gets connected to the body and somewhere in between there is a heart. At some, at some point there's a, there's, a, there's a coming together. There's a conversation that occurs, right? I think, I think that's the, 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 the core point right there is that we may come at it a little differently. And, and the point really that one of the core points of revel is how is to answer the question, how am I wired? How do I respect my wiring rather than comparing to someone else's experience or what somebody else thinks I should be experiencing or expressing? How do I trust my own body? How do I trust my own heart and mind? And how do I allow them to talk to each other in such a way that I feel true? When we when we first spoke, you uh, said something about how you feel that just our culture at large um, is missing this uh, uh, feminine generosity. Yeah. What did you mean by that? Yeah. Nurture, real nurture. And, and we can tie a couple of things together here that we've talked about here. I, you know, I recognize that I was able to get in relationships very easily and, and I would get in relationships and people would, men would say, you're the most nurturing, like honestly, uh, uh assertive, but, but, really generous with your attention and your affection. And I feel so loved. I've never felt so loved. Fast forward, you know, a number of relationships and hearing that a number of times. And I thought, how come I never feel that way? Mm. Mm. And okay. So I'm really good at creating that environment for other people, but I'm not so good at receiving it. And maybe I wouldn't even know if, if it was right. If I was right smack in the middle of it. Maybe it's right there and I just haven't been your butts. Haven't been available to experience it, you know? Because I would have men also say, look, I try to contribute to you and I try to let you know that I love you, but it seems like it never gets in. What's that? <laughs> Pretty interesting. And so I, you know, I recognized or I thought I felt like what was becoming a recognition was maybe I've been misusing my expression my nurture expression because what would happen is I would make myself super available, but I think I was doing it for the wrong reason. I wasn't actually doing it for them. Say more about that. I, I was creating an environment that was intoxicating for them. Very difficult to say no to very compelling, but then. So you probably felt this power. Totally. Yeah. Mm. Totally. So I was using this exquisite gift of nurture to feel like nurture for a little while, <laughs> just long enough to secure a particular position with them. And then I would use it on occasion when I needed to, to get whatever else I wanted or thought I wanted in, in, in those situations. And I just started to recognize that. And it came through my personal development work early on. And uh, someone said, you know, you use your sexuality and your eroticism to, um, you know, like, it's so powerful. It's so compelling. And I went, wait a minute, let me look. And, I, and the truth came up because I was willing to sit with it, right? Instead of get insulted by it. I thought, well, let me listen for the truth of that. And I looked back at my relationships and I said to myself, my big self said to my little S self, um, yeah, you've been doing that your whole life. You use your sexual dynamic to um, manipulate men and to dominate women. And I went, oh! It was this like kind of crushing realization and it gave this whole umbrella view of the quality of my relationships and why it was so difficult for me to connect with women and so easy for me to connect with men. But then I never, you know, after I got bored, I was, I was done. And so my experience of connection was, 
I did I couldn't experience the connection. I wasn't creating authentic connection. I mean, it does all make sense, though, uh, considering you know what what you guys said. So you had a, this grandfatherly figure who, uh, when you were when you were just a kid and you're 12 years old, and uh, you know, despite you you know you you're uh, sharing that even at that age, you had you were more in touch with your sexuality at, at that age. Um, even though, you know what I mean? Like it's, it, it makes sense. For sure. Hmm. There was, there was an awakening, uh, you know, far younger than, cause it was started earlier than that. But I think that it got to be reclaimed in that moment that I said, wow, I can be responsible for my reactions and my um, invitations and responses sexually. I can be even though there was trauma, even though there was abuse, you know, on a number of levels, you know, my family was not, not a very safe place. And yet I didn't want to be the victim of my story. I really didn't want to want that to be the case. I wanted there to be a generational shift for my children instead of just the pendulum swinging and um, me being a victim on one end and then creating this overcorrection with them, you know, God, how do I stand in the center of this and just embody the wisdom that comes through all of these life experiences? Is that so what I wanted to do for other people who have experienced terrific trauma and and emotional abuse and, and relational abuse is to offer something that really does bring the synthesis of those really hard experiences into a conscious awareness and an embodiment of self-respect not just the patronization, oh, I love myself, here are my self-love practices. No, you can do that all day long. And if it isn't actually getting in, if it isn't actually changing and transforming my relationship to who I am as a human being, then it's just another dogmatic practice that I'm going through the motions of. And it's not actually making the difference. I mean, sometimes you do have to fake it till you make it. I'm not saying that that's not the case, but it's different to have a deeply embodied sense of dignity than to have someone tell me I deserve it. How has this, this work that you've been doing impacted and affected and shaped your relationship with your kids? Oh my God. Well, <laughs> well now look, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, um, they, the personal development stuff was critical. I mean, it made a huge difference because they started seeing me do the work of going back and reclaiming the broken bits and parts. Um, they also saw me at my worst in that because I had to come up against all of the demons, you know, and all of the stuff that I was petrified to admit, you know, I had participated in or done or had, you know, put on them. Um, and so the work that, that Revel allowed me to do was to, you know, that, I don't know if anybody else has this, but I sure have this, that sick kind of gutted feeling when I recognize the, you know, trauma that I put my own kids through, not understanding ADHD and not understanding my family history and uh, attachment styles. So then I could look at those and instead of, thinking, oh my God, how could I have done that? What a horrible parent, a real parent would never would have done those things. I can say, wow, those are kind of the things that a person who went through what I went through would have done. And I can bring awareness now to it. Um, instead of using my kids as proof that I'm a good human being, because I was doing that. I mothered better than my mother and I parented better than my father. Therefore I'm justified. <laughs> I have redeemed myself and it's not fair to put them in that position. And I saw that I was doing that. And so I was able to go back and have conversations with them and say, look, I don't want you to be a product of my trauma or my victory over trauma. I want you to be your own human being. And I want you to be able to tell me whatever you need to tell me about the discomfort of having me as a mom. I think it's a, uh, you know, it's a common, maybe it's a common experience when we think about sex. We don't really want to be thinking about our parents, right? Right. No. It's like, no, 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 like, no, 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 I don't want to go there. Like brain, like stay, stay far away from that. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I wonder with part of what you're doing is you're, you're, you know, we know that, that shame can't survive when you talk about the stuff. 
Right. But this yep. is also, I, I was uh, talking with, uh, uh, with Ari Tuckman, uh, who was just recently on the podcast. Uh, and there's this, this, uh, this, a podcast where, uh, I don't remember the name of it, but it's a, um, a mom and her adult son talking about sex. Like, it is just really it's oh my gosh right and so i was just curious uh like do you ever get like get in conversations and like your kids are like i I don't want to talk about this yeah too much information mom yes um (laughs) but but so great that you asked that because that was the impetus you know when i started doing the personal development work i thought okay what are the conversations that i want my kids to be able to have that will be the foundation for them having an authentic sense of their own self-worth and, and, and an authentic relationship to respect and dignity. And it was like, well, sex, love, intimacy, power. If they can talk about those things, um, with a sense of freedom, they're going to have a lot of power. And so, uh, early, you know, we were very, I was as sex positive as I knew how to be with them as kids. They were all born at home. Some of them saw each other born, you know, that kind of thing. And then as soon as I was in that sex positive community, I started opening up conversations with them and they were all teenagers at the time. My daughters were and so we talk very openly about sexual nature, sexual things, and they actually surprisingly, shockingly, delightfully are willing to come to me and say, mom, so I have this question. I mean, to me, that's just the biggest compliment. Yeah. Um, my son, it's a little bit different, but we did actually, you know, when he found out that I was kind of in the realm of sexual education, his eyes got really big. I remember he was about 14 at the time when we had this conversation and I said, so, you know, buddy, you know, we can have those conversations if you find yourself able to talk to me about them. And he, you know, he admitted well, it was a lot easier to talk to you than it is to talk to dad. And I thought, great. And we had some conversation about male, female interaction. And I remember him just laughing himself off the bed. He thought it was so funny, you know, that I could say what I had just said. And he was like, okay, okay, cool. That's, that's kind of all I need to know. <laughs> and, um, and my daughters, uh, I mean, they all, they've always known I was a little off. And so when they found out about the BDSM stuff, they were like, uh, that makes sense. And so we don't go into deep conversations about that, but they are certainly well aware of that aspect of my life. And they know that they can talk to me about any, I mean, if you can talk about that, you know, things that people do in a dungeon, then you can talk about an awful lot of things. And that's kind of the beauty of that to me is, boy, if we can talk about that without shame, what else can we talk about? You know, do you, do you think, do you think that, you know, we know that there's uh, emotional intelligence and we know that there's social intelligence. Do you think that sexual intelligence is, is its own thing or is it wrapped up like uh, sort of in within this? Um, cause I, I do think that there is a, a, the sense of, um, how well do we know what we want, um, as sexual human beings? How are we able to communicate what we want? Um, and negotiate those, those interactions. Do, do you look at it as a form of intelligence? Certainly. When I know, when I found out for myself that I'm more dominant in certain situations with certain people and more submissive in other situations with other people, or sometimes I'm more dominant in a particular situation with my partner, and sometimes I'm a little more submissive. To learn more about my, the power aspect of my sexual expression gave me so much access to smarter, kinder, more loving conversations with my lover. Mm-hmm. Because instead of getting, saying, oh, you were overpowering me or you were taking something away from me, I could start to see the exchange and recognize their sexual expression also had nuances that I didn't necessarily need to label as overpowering or underpowering. I started that, that dominant submissive part gave me access to a lot of language and a lot of understanding that created a lot of room and freedom to be myself and freedom for my partner to be who they were and the way they are. So intelligence, absolutely. And I think that it comes down to really how we use power, which is probably the scarier conversation than how we use sex, Hmm. but they're very directly connected. It is attributed to Oscar Wilde, but we can't confirm this. And he said, everything in the world is about sex, except sex (laughs) and sex. Sex is about power. 
Mm. And I heard that early on in my, you know, exposure to the BDSM world. And I thought, what does that mean? And, and to me, it came down to this conversation that I've uh, cultivated with Ravel, which is when I can honor my own sexuality and I can hold it in a place of regard, then I'm not ashamed with others. And around me, they also get to hold their sexual expression with an acceptance and a high regard. And we start to have more intelligent conversations than is it good or bad? Is it right or wrong? That's not a deeply intelligent conversation as far as I'm concerned. But what are the ways that I get to use my sexual expression in a way that fosters and nurtures a respectful environment around me and encourages other people around me to, to, to feel that same freedom? when it's no longer a deeply wrong and um, shameful to experience and express the truth of who I am around me, there's freedom for everyone. Mm. That's what I want for people. If people want to find out more um, about uh, Revel uh, and what you're doing, what, where can they go to find more information? There are, there are a couple of places. Thanks for asking. Um, uh, Facebook has been a, a pretty reliable resource for me. And there was a Facebook page called Revel, the Audacity of Ecstasy. They can certainly go there if they're a Facebook uh, savvy and, and prefer that mode. Um, there's also a website and it is tanyabrakeman.com. And it is a very simple web page because I have been unwilling to deep dive into the intricacies of exquisite web pages as of yet. But nice job going good me. enough. <laughs> Thank you. I had help with that. Oh man. I, I can't tell you how many people I've worked with or, who they don't launch the website until everything they, it's like, nope, one page launch and iterates. Just keep iterating. Keep, Thank I, you. Yes. Thank yes. You. Embr yes. Embrace the shitty first draft. <laughs> Much appreciated. <laughs> well, this has been a really interesting conversation. Um, I know you have a, a wedding that is coming up. Um, hopefully you've sent out the invitations already. You've taken care of the food. Um, you got a dress. I don't know. Like what are the, I'm just, yeah, wedding planning is, uh, it's, you know, what's really great is my four daughters are, they're 28, 26, 24 and 22. My son will be 18 in December. Um, they started out as my wedding planners and we have a Trello board and we have this pieces and the nice. parts and the ones doing the food and the ones doing this other stuff with the dress. And then a really great friend of mine said, Hey, I'm, I'll, I'll assist. So I handed the whole thing over to her and she's now my wedding planner and I'm breathing wow. in a whole new way. So yes, this Scottish pagan peasant wedding that's going to happen outside in the rain by a bonfire soon is now not being handled by my ADHD brain. <laughs> It has a team. And and I can say that this is really a culmination of the the wins of me learning about my ADHD brain, being willing to accept help about it, being willing to be gentle with myself about how my brain works. And this has been so much fun to plan this wedding. Stressful, yes, but it's just delightful. And I'm so excited for the occasion. Well, I hope uh, the, the occasion fills you with, with ecstasy and uh, it's everything that uh, you're, you're looking for. So congratulations uh, thank you. on that and on, on the work that you've been doing. This has been a really fun conversation. Thank you. Mm, likewise. Thank you so much, Eric. And, it, and really, my thanks to you. The finding your podcast and, and um, just the way that you present this, it has, it has just felt like home to me. I listened to a number of others that were like, oh, that sounds like useful information, but I couldn't stick with it. So I'm just so grateful for the work that you're doing. Thank you. Mm, I appreciate that. Thanks so yeah, much. Definitely. All right. All right. Uh, Tanya Breakman, thank you so much. We'll put links on our show notes uh, to the website, which be ADHD.com slash whatever episode number this happens to be. You know, see, you know, when your podcast host has ADHDs, they don't actually know what episode it's going to be. Like, it seems that like other podcasts, they know what episode it's going to be when they're doing the interview. I, well, this, that's not this podcast. So uh, Tanya, thank you so much. Such a pleasure. Thank you, Eric. 
This is Eric Tivers. Thank you for listening and congratulations for making it to the end. ADHD Rewired is more than just a podcast. We are a community focused on learning, growing, and connection. The website is ADHDrewired.com. You can find summaries and additional resources for each episode. You can apply to our free and secret Facebook community. You can learn more about ADHD Rewired's intensive online video-based coaching and accountability groups and sign up for my email newsletter to get exclusive content you won't get anywhere else. It's all at ADHDrewired.com. While you're there, click the Patreon button. If you're a regular listener and you're still listening to my voice, consider making a monthly contribution by becoming a patron through our Patreon page. If you are able to financially support my work, it would mean a lot. This show is free to listeners, but it is not free to produce. And patrons get really cool perks. You can follow me on Twitter at Eric Tibbers. You can like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash ADHD Rewired. If you're a coach, therapist, or related professional, connect with me on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash Eric Tibbers. You can also subscribe to ADHD Rewired on YouTube and you can subscribe to ADHD Rewired on YouTube and see select interviews and some other videos I've posted. Podcasts change lives. You can make a difference in someone's life by spreading the word about this podcast. Mention it in your online communities on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, or wherever you hang out online. And be sure to share it with your friends and your family and your clients, as well as your coaches, therapists, and doctors. And if you're a coach, therapist, doctor, or ADHD support group leader, and you would like a pack of podcast postcards to hand out, you can request those at my website, ADHDrewired.com. And if you're a member of Chad or any other ADHD support group, please be sure to tell them about this podcast. You can even show them how to download it on their phone. You know, you might be the person that turns somebody on to a podcast for the very first time. And if you really love this episode, please consider hitting share on your podcast player. I'm only one person and I count on you to help me spread the message. One of the biggest things that you can do to support this podcast and to help other people discover it is to leave an honest rating and review on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, or any other podcast app that accepts ratings and reviews. And don't forget to hit subscribe on this podcast on your podcast app so new episodes are automatically pushed to your favorite podcast app. Looking for more ways to listen and learn? Get a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com ADHD Rewired. Not sure where to start? In no particular order. Check out Atomic Habits by James Clear. The Body Keeps Score by Bessel van der Kolk. 10% Happier and Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. These are both by Dan Harris. Change Your Questions and Change Your Life by Marilee G. Adams. The One Thing by Gary Keller and Jay Papasan. Procrastinate on Purpose by Rory Vaden. The Four Tendencies by Gretchen Rubin. If you have trouble asking for help, listen to The Art of Asking by Amanda Palmer. It's one of the best produced audiobooks I've ever heard. If you're looking for something a little bit more say, magical, I unexpectedly fell in love with the Harry Potter series. And I don't usually listen to those kinds of books. And I loved it. And of course, if you haven't yet boarded the Brene Brown bus yet, check out Brene Brown's books, starting with The Gifts of Imperfection, Daring Greatly, Rising Strong, The Power of Vulnerability. And if you're an entrepreneur or a leader in any capacity, check out her 2018 book, Dare to Lead. And Brene still is my most wanted guest. So if you know Brene, you would be so kind to make that connection for me. I would be really, really grateful. You know who else I would like to have on the show? You. Click the podcast tab at ADHDrewired.com and then click the Be a Guest button at the top of that page and schedule a 15-minute pre-interview. This is Eric Tibbers reminding you to keep learning, keep growing, and keep connecting. Self-care is not selfish, and no matter what gets done or doesn't get done, at the end of the day, you are still enough. And no matter how hard it feels, we can do hard things. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next week.